Welcome back to the program. The Industrial Revolution changed the world. It changed the nature of work. It displaced workers. It ushered in the Gilded Age and created more inequality. It shrank the world, drove consumerism, and reshaped political ideology. The Internet Revolution, 150 years later, has had startling similar effects. We worship at the altar of creative destruction. We fetishize technology and the freedom and democratization that the Internet has promised. But at what price? Simply, can the same technology and companies that fractured and reshaped the world now be what we need to put it back together again? My guest, Andrew Keene, thinks that the Internet is not the answer. Andrew Keene is an Internet entrepreneur. He's currently the executive director of the Silicon Valley Salon Futurecast and a columnist for CNN. He's the author of the previous books, Cult of the Amateur and Digital Vertigo, and it is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Keene back to this program to talk about his newest book, The Internet is Not the Answer. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Well, that was a brilliant introduction. My God, I thought I wrote that, and I realized you should be writing books, not doing radio shows. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate that. Is one of the problems that we face in looking at the Internet today and what it's done, the degree to which it has been overhyped? We were told it would make the world a better, freer place. What's happened is quite different, as you've written about, and the Internet is not the answer. Is the problem simply the hype that was promised, the expectations that came along with it, and the disappointment that has come along with that? No, I don't actually think it is that. I don't think that's the problem. I think it was good to hype it. I think I spent the first part of the book um, telling the story of how the Internet arose. Um, my editor, Morgan Entrican in New York, really pushed me onto that. The first draft of the book he didn't like because it didn't have enough history. He said, you need a couple of chapters at the beginning with the history. What is this thing, the Internet? Where did it come from? Um, so I spent a few months researching uh, the history, the early history, Vannevar Bush, uh, J.C.R. Licklider, Tim Berners-Lee, of course. And it's funny, uh, Walter Isaacson's new book, The Innovators, which is a wonderful book. Um, which I, I, I'm sure everyone's read. If you haven't, definitely need to read it. And so it's a nice sort of comparison to my book. It deals with a lot of the same subjects. We come to quite different conclusions. Um, but these are people who believe that the computer, what, what JCR Licklider called the human-computer symbiosis, would make the world a better place. Uh, Vannevar Bush believed that you know if you miniaturize everything, it would be good for the creative class. Uh, uh, Norbert Wiener, the M famous MIT inventor of cybernetics, he thought, and he used technology to defeat Hitler. So technology can be good, and I think it's important to remind ourselves that these guys, who didn't make massive fortunes, actually wanted to use technology to improve the world. Now, guys like Mark Zuckerberg, say that technology is improving the world, but actually often what they're saying is very self-serving, and they say, well, let's, use, let's, let's, let's connect up the world, let's have everyone online. But he's only saying that so that everyone can be members of Facebook and he can make more billions of dollars. So I think it's important to contrast the original idealists, um, some of whom are still alive, like Tim Berners-Lee, who is perpetually reminding ourselves of the importance privacy. He wasn't someone who made a fortune from the internet. Uh, and he was, I think he was kind of proud of that. He maintained a distance. Um, he hadn't sold out. Um, 
So, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing to hype it. What is bad is when it's hyped and the reality is very different from, from what people are promising. And the purpose of my book is to say, okay, this is what we were promised. We're almost 50 years into the history of the Internet. By, in, in, by 2019, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first computer-to-computer communication, which took place in 1969 at UCLA. We just celebrated the 25th anniversary of the web. And this thing is growing up. It's not a kid anymore. It's not a, it's not a five-year-old. It's an adolescent. The time has come for us to say, okay, what's really going on here? How is this changing the world, and is it for our benefit? Is it a, a success or a failure? And in my book, I conclude that at the moment, it's a failure. At the moment, the Internet is not the answer as the operating system for the 21st century. Part of the problem seems to be with the history, that when you talk about it from the perspective of Bush or Licklider or Berners-Lee, that they were looking at it in an ideal world, from an ideal perspective. And in fact, the reality is that it grew up in a world that was changing for many other reasons, whether it was outsourcing or globalization or economic transformation, that there were simply a lot of other factors upon which the Internet became a kind of force multiplier with respect to those other factors. Absolutely, yeah, I really like that, that term force multiplier because I, I think that's what it is, both as a cause and a consequence. It's exaggerating all both the good and particularly the evil forces of early 21st century capitalism and of the market. Um, yeah, and I, and, I, and I don't think it's fair to be critical of those guys. I mean, I don't think I am in my book. Um, they were scientists. They didn't understand the way in which the world was going to change through their invention. I use this term, the unintended consequences of the revolution. I think it's an important term. I'm not one of these Marxists who believe in some inevitable narrative in history, or I'm certainly not a conspiracy theorist who believe that there are a group of evil Silicon Valley types who are controlling this whole thing. Uh, just as capitalism was created by aesthetic Puritans, so, ironically enough, the, the Internet revolution was created by idealistic and often rather poor scientists, or certainly people who work for the government. It is a reminder, of course, of the importance of the state, of government, of supervision from above. Uh, and the narrative is really important. I really focused on this period between about 1989, when Berners-Lee invented the web, and the mid-90s. Uh, when you had this radical transformation of a of a non-market computer network into this overhyped engine of capitalism, of the market, the creation of instant millionaires and then billionaires, it's probably best symbolized by Mark Andreessen, who, as a kid, went to work uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, being paid on a, by the government to develop a mosaic, the, the first really accessible web browser, and then of course left, he was angry, disappointed with how he was treated, understandably, um, came out to Silicon Valley, met Jim Clark, and founded Netscape, which became, of course, the first real internet company, uh, an engine for massive personal games with Clark and Andreessen, and the symbol of all the excitement and also many of the problems of, of, our, of our current internet economy. In many ways, the model, at least with respect to people talking about the promise, 
was really the printing press, that somehow it would have this profound effect in democratizing information and knowledge. Yeah, and in many ways, I, I think the equivalent of the printing press is relevant. My friend or my frenemy, Jeff Jarvis, who we often debate, I have a great deal of admiration and respect, and I think he's a lovely guy, Jeff, argues that we're still too early, that the printing press was still in you know, 1498 or something, and that the printing press, which was invented by Gutenberg uh, earlier that century, changed everything, but it took many years. Uh, and even today, we're still seeing some of the implications of what people call the Gutenberg economy. Um, and I think the equivalent is appropriate. I think that the historical dimension of the network is really as revolutionary as the invention of the printing press, but no one quite understood the way in which the printing press would change things. In the same way, they didn't understand it would have the same impact on, um, on the destruction of the authority of the priest, uh, on the democratization of things, of the reinvention of the self. These were things that had profound impact that it took centuries to work out. I think we're working on internet speed now, and uh, we, we're not, in, you know, we're, we're a century or two into this thing in, in, in Gutenberg. Term. Um, but I think just as um, just as some people idealize the history of the printing press, they forget that in the wake of Gutenberg's invention, they had, there was a hundred years of civil war between Protestants and Catholics in Europe. There was huge disturbance, huge unrest, and I think we're going to experience. We indeed are experiencing the same kind of upheaval. Fortunately, currently not war, at least, but the same kind of disruption, the same kind of undermining of, uh, of, of, of the establishment, the same kind of revolutionary forces as, as the Gutenberg Revolution. And as Clay Shirky, I think, very correctly says, we're seeing the destruction of the old, but it's not clear what the new is. And in many industries, like newspapers, we see the destruction of the old model, but there isn't a new model. So we just see destruction. We don't really see creativity. Creation. Most people assume that they use the kind of Schumpeterian notion that with destruction comes creation. But that isn't always the case. We're just seeing some industries totally decimated, and it's not clear what's replacing. The other side of that is in doing this, we are looking at the very same institutions, the very same methods that created the destruction, to look for the solutions. And in many ways, that may be exactly the last place to look. Exactly. Well, I, and, I, and, I, and and again, you put it beautifully. I think um, you know we're we're seeing the internet as the vehicle of revolution, but it's also supposed to be the platform. So we say, okay, the internet is the answer. With networks like Airbnb and Uber and TaskRabbit, these are the new platforms for twenty-first century life, or Google. Uh, but of course, they're just destructive. They're destroying the old world and creating what some people would call this perfect market where anyone can be a cab driver, anyone can become a hotelier, anyone can hire anyone at any point. But that's the problem. What we're seeing is the decimation of the old, increasingly unregulated, anarchic world where the only really people, the only profitable part of this new world are a tiny elite who control these new platforms. So Uber is a $40 billion taxi cab platform. It's great for the 
tiny group of shareholders who invested in Uber and for a tiny group of Uber executives, but for the tens of thousands of small cab owners and cab drivers who are swept away by this revolution, it's not a good thing. And it's not a good thing, of course, for consumers because we're sitting at the back of Uber cabs that are unregulated, driven by people with criminal records, no security at all, and, and exploited when it rains because there's no pricing mechanism, no security, no regulation on pricing. So this world, you're absolutely right, um, is, is being destroyed uh, by something which also claims to be the answer. One of the things that lies at the heart of this is this broader notion of the free economy. And you quote somebody in the book in talking about this idea of free as being the original sin of the Internet. Yeah, and I think that I really that's a really important quote I use, and I, and I bring it up in a, in a lot of conversations. Now, that guy was Ethan Zimmerman. He works now at the Berkman Center at Harvard University. He's a classic example of an early Internet idealist. He thought that the network society would improve the world. He and I have been involved in debates before. He's a very well-meaning, very nice guy, classic example of a, of a kind of an East Coast techno-intellectual who I think is souring on the Internet uh, revolution. He says that, and he's not alone in saying it, but I think he captured it perfectly. He says that the free economy was the original sin because it turns all of us into products. It means that inevitably, unavoidably, you have companies like Google and Facebook that give their stuff out for free. They're very good, very useful products. And the only way they can become profitable is acquiring our data. And then they, one way or the other, they claim they wouldn't, but they do. They package up our data and they sell it to advertisers. So the big data economy is a surveillance economy. Bruce Schneier, another very, very brilliant computer security analyst, says pretty much the same thing. That the internet now, the internet economy, is a surveillance economy. And uh, that's the ultimate irony. My last book, Digital Vertigo, I turn this narrative into a Hitchcock film. Uh, and I think that's still really appropriate. You know, we, we are the ones who have become, this is in a Hitchcock film, it's the innocent hero is swept into this awful crime that they don't understand in movies like Vertigo. So that's what's happened with the internet. We've all been swept into this thing. We all love it, but when we turn around, we're the ones being exploited. We're the mug at the poker table. That's that old cliche, if you sit around a poker table and you don't know who the mug is, it's you, and it's all of us in this new economy. In many ways, though, it was an extension of what had been happening in entertainment, particularly if we look at the way radio grew up and the way television grew up as free mediums of entertainment, and the exchange proposition was the advertising. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, I think sometimes my work, I think, in Pickering Culture of the Amateur, I treated the Internet too much as a revolutionary force disconnected with previous trends in media. And I think if you look at the work of people like Neil Postman, Christopher Lash, a lot of the cultural and economic forces of today's Internet are direct consequences of the television economy. Look, I'm not against advertising. I'm not against having an entertainment information economy that's driven in part by advertising. That's not a bad thing. But when it's entirely dependent on advertising, and when that advertising is dependent on the mining of personal data. It's a bad thing. Martin Sorrell, the CEO of WPP, the largest mm -hmm. advertising company in 
friend and a supporter. He's learned my last book. He doesn't think it's healthy. He thinks that we need to relearn to pay for stuff. We should be paying for our newspapers, for our music. And we've been spoiled as consumers. We think everything should be free. In the 90s, everyone thought that the old television economy could just be transported over into the internet. It would be driven by advertising. But the reality, of course, is that Google has modified advertising so that they're profiting, but very, other, very few other people you can't really get quality stuff on the internet. The only way it pays is to use a generated content economy. You can't afford to pay high-quality journalists to create content and then build a business around advertising. But what you can do is give people social networks, give them the tools to express themselves, to put their platforms up, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest. That's where the money lies. That's not really culture. That's just narcissism. It's getting worse because those previous forms of entertainment, television, radio, what have you, are all morphing to the Internet, and there's a whole different medium of exchange, which is exactly the kind of exploitation of data that you're talking about. Right, and, and you've got the supposed newspapers that are actually just platforms for self-gratification for, for self and self-promotion. I think one that comes to mind is, is the Huffington Post. Ariana Huffington presented it as this sort of improved version of newspapers. But actually, they don't pay any of their contributors. So the only people who can afford to write for them, they, they pay a tiny proportion of them. They're not a real news organization. They don't have bureaus overseas. So all they do is repackage other people's data and claim it's their own, or allow people to write on the Huffington Post which essentially self-promote their companies, their ideas, their books. Um, so I, I, I never go to the Post. I think it's appalling, actually. I think it's kind of a, it, it combines the worst elements of, a, um, of this sort of self-promotion, uh, narcissistic economy, and the, the sort of the glitz of, 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 of tabloid newspapers. Uh, but the problem, the problem isn't the Huffington Post. I mean, that, I guess it, you know, if Ariana can make a success of it, that's fine. Uh, the problem is, is that serious news organizations are struggling to survive. Um, and it seems like the only way in which they can survive is either get bought by a wealthy guy like Chris Hughes or Jeff Bezos, or compromise your standards so much like Forbes that you, you lose any credibility. And of course, the New Republic is itself. An awful, an awful warning about what happens when you gilded class by the old media. Chris Hughes came in, bought the New Republic, said he respected it, said he wanted to maintain all the traditions of this, you know, a hundred-year-old magazine with a great tradition of writing and independent thought. And a few months, uh, last month, the entire editorial team walked out, uh, quit on him. Absolutely, because he wanted to turn it into another version of the Huffington Post. Even the Washington Post, I worry about. Bezos bought it, and it maintained, I think, intellectual freedom and credibility. In fact, ironically enough, it gave my book a wonderful review. But at the same time, it worries me now that I'm reading pieces about the Washington Post developing software for other newspapers. Is it going to maintain its credibility as an independent newspaper? Or is it going to become this sort of information platform, a kind of an LMS, 
for other newspapers. So everyone's facing the same fundamental problem. The New York Times uh, is facing it, and one wonders about its long-term viability. Everyone uses the example of The Guardian. Oh, well, look at The Guardian. Look how successful they are. But what they forget is The Guardian isn't really a business. It's being driven. It's historically been driven by uh, a public trust called the Stock Trust, which has poured millions of dollars into supporting it. So it's not profitable. And if, I, I wonder, I hope The Guardian will become profitable, but I wonder if it actually can in this economy. The other question in all of this is whether everything will continue to evolve in the same way everywhere in the world, because there is something inherent in the Internet and much of what we've been talking about that has a particular and unique appeal to the individual ethos here in America that may be different in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's clearly, I mean, it might be a little vulgar, but certainly it, it's clear that in, in many ways the Internet is, a force, a platform, an economic, um, an, an economic engine that is benefiting America. So more and more of the resistance, I think, to Google and Facebook, uh, particularly Google in the, in Europe in particular, is um, is 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 driven by this anti-American hostility, which I'm not sympathetic to. Um, and you're also seeing the appearance of indigenous. Uh, businesses in Russia, in China, we're seeing the fragmentation of the web. The original internet idealists, people like Tim Berners-Lee, bemoan this. They think it's a bad thing. They still believe in the idea of a global network. I, I'm ambivalent. On the one hand, I like the idea of a global network if it's if it's real, uh, and if it's if it's if it's sort of if, 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 if it's viable. But the problem is that other forces are lending to its fragmentation. Um, so what we're seeing, for example, with the Sony hack in North Korea, is, as you say, the Internet is just sort of exaggerating the old laws and forces. So as we see the old international political system reappear, uh, uh, sort of the... the the, the reinvention, if you like, of geography, which uh, the, the journalist Captain wrote a wonderful book about. Uh, so the internet now will become a tool for great power rivalry. So on the one hand, you've got these Americans who are thinking of the internet still as a global force. On the other hand, we've got the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans who increasingly are using the internet and its companies as an instrument for uh, great power politics. Um, and we saw with the NSA that uh, uh, America was also using these, uh, the, 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 the security apparatus in the US was using private internet companies for its own benefit. I fear that the reality of power, of real power, not the power that Moses Naeem writes about it, says it's been democratized by the internet. That's a lot of nonsense. Real power, real international, the, the global structures of power that international theorists like Kenneth Waltz writes about, uh, the, the great American international relations theorists, these things will become the dominant feature of our digital economy. So, you know, in a perfect world, I'd love it if the internet um, uh, united all of us was a true global force. 
but we don't live in a perfect world, and the reality is quite the reverse. And to that end, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the potential need for regulation and public policy to begin to address some of these issues. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, and I, and I, I want to be really clear here. I, I don't think the regulation is the only answer, but I think that we need to understand that there is a strain of libertarianism in Silicon Valley, articulated by people like Travis Kalamis, in particular of Uber, that says we don't need any regulation. The government's always the enemy. The government's inefficient. And I think we need to remind ourselves, you said at the beginning of this conversation that the Internet was a historic um, a transformative development as the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. And I think you're right. And I think why my book is quite historical. We need to go back to the 19th century and remind ourselves that without regulation, kids would still be working in practice. Without regulation, you and I wouldn't be able to go outside because the smog would be so awful. So regulation made the Industrial Revolution viable. It didn't destroy industrialization. And I think to make this digital revolution now set, to take it from its sort of early adolescence and then ensure that it can grow up to become a responsible adult, it needs an element of adult supervision. And that adult supervision comes from an element of regulation. We also need companies to, to self-regulate. I use some examples in the book of the way in which um, credit card companies and ISPs and police organizations and companies like Google and Microsoft have worked together to fight these new massive piracy businesses. Uh, so regulation is not a dirty word, whether or not it comes from government or from companies, but also from us. There's, of course, the great issue of the Internet and digital networks as a kind of narcotic, as a thing that, um, as a thing that, uh, that, that we are now uh, so dependent on that we can't live without. Nicholas Carr has written about this many other writers. I don't really deal with that much in the book, but self-regulation is important. Um, we need to learn to establish distance from, from, from the network. We began with the mainframe computer that was in another building. Then we got the desktop that was in our own homes. Then we got the laptop that we could carry around with us. Then we got the, 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 the smartphone that we could put in our pocket. Now we're coming up with the wristwatch. Good, uh, Apple will come out with, of course, a historic wristwatch that will come out next year. It will probably change everything. Uh, that, 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 that makes the, uh, the network and digital information and all our updates more and more intimate with us. And in this world, I think we need to learn how to regulate ourselves so that we are not completely dependent on, 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 on digital that we don't become so infatuated with it that we become addicts. Um, so, so, so regulation on a lot of levels, I think, is important, from government to corporate to individual. And the other area beyond those where regulation needs to be looked at or thought about is with respect to the impact that it's having on inequality, the continued hollowing out of the middle class. Yeah, absolutely. Three. It, it, it's huge. Um, it's really so important. The Internet is not the cause of inequality, even if 
even if uh, Vannevar Bush and JCR Licklider and Tim Berners-Lee hadn't existed, we didn't have this remarkable network product, um, we'd still have inequality. But the internet is compounding. It's creating an economic arrangement where a tinier and tinier proportion of people uh, are wealthier and wealthier, and it's contributing to the destruction of the middle class. In my book, I have two simultaneous chapters, one on Kodak and one on Instagram. I talk about Kodak as an industrial company that employed 140,000 people that created a remarkably rich civic life in Rochester, New York. And this was destroyed by companies like Instagram that created the selfie economy. Now that's part of the sympathetic nature of capitalism. No company lasts forever, I understand that. But compare Instagram with um, with with Kodak. Now, maybe it's not an exact comparison, but Instagram, uh, when it was sold to Facebook for a billion dollars a couple of years ago, employed under 50 people. Look at WhatsApp. It employed. It was sold to Facebook for 22 billion dollars, and it employs 35 people. So this is not an economy that's providing middle class jobs or a middle-class economy for anyone outside Silicon Valley. Even in Silicon Valley, I have a chapter on, on, on the San Francisco era. Even in Silicon Valley, the wealthy tech elite is a tiny proportion of the community, and most people are living in poverty. Most people are, 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 are not really benefiting from this technological revolution. So the real effort in this book was to connect the Internet with these broader social forces. It's not the cause. In part, it's a consequence, but it is playing a role in exaggerating these forces that the vast majority of us don't want. We want jobs. We want the, a, a middle-class world, a middle-class economy. And the Internet is enabling anything but that. Andrew Keene, his book is The Internet is Not the Answer. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Wonderful interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 